Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose driven development teams for high performance, innovation, and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like Tech Leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of rain and the occasional sunshine. And in this episode, we're going to talk about getting clear on AI and machine learning. And our guest who's going to be talking about this is Felix. We're going to talk about his journey, what tips he'd like to bring and share to his fellow men and women tech leaders out there on artificial intelligence and machine learning, and some interesting musings on how tech leaders can lead within R&D. So, welcome, Felix. Hello, TC. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, Felix, let's have a, um, would you like to kind of give us a brief history of who Felix is? Sure. My real passion is mathematics, and that's where my career started in, in the field of pure mathematics. Um, then I did uh, um, some work in general relativity and cosmology, space-time structures, getting into systems engineering, and finally spending seven years back at Warwick, which is where I did my pure maths degree, um, looking into machine reasoning as opposed to machine learning. So. Uh, I was focused on common sense reasoning and reasoning systems. Um, and obviously with reasoning, there comes uh, the mathematics of logic. So I did quite a lot of work in mathematical logic. My timing was immaculate because I hit the second AI winter, um, okay. which is why I ended up in doing research in AI. Um, and I snuck into back into academia to do some research while waiting for it to come back, and it didn't. So <laughs> I got out and became a software engineer. Cool, excellent. Uh, primarily focused on R and D projects. Yeah. And then just went through the ladder up to CTO. Spent some time uh, as a professor of informatics in the U.S. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So it's quite quite a quite an interesting journey. We were just before the podcast talking around many subjects, which hopefully we'll be uh, distributing as well. Um, uh, around because uh, I went to University of Warwick as well, which is just up the road. Uh, Felix and I have actually met because uh, we're kind of quite local to each other. And uh, I did uh, uh, engineering electronics at Warwick, and uh, I'm a big fan of maths. I'm, I'm not particularly good at it, but I, I see maths as uh, almost like poetry, you know, it's uh, quite stunning in, in its own right. And I, I find it interesting you talk about, because um, we're going to be talking about machine learning very shortly, and, and you, you yep. mentioned the word machine reasoning. Yes. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more? Um, well, machine reasoning is the ability for it to essentially make um, deductions or inferences from missing data. So for example, if I said to you, Joe went into a restaurant, ordered fish, paid the bill and, leave, and left. And then I ask you, what did Joe eat? You typically say fish, hmm. but I didn't say eating at all. And this is an example that comes from Roger Shank. And I love it because 
it brings in a lot of background knowledge and information about restaurants. Why would you, for example, why would you go into a restaurant, order something, and pay for it but not eat it? You know,、yeah. that's that that's just not rational. So by having、um, background knowledge, background information, background contexts into how people behave and how situations work, and this involves things like causal reasoning. You know, if I take a glass of water and I tip it, then you know the water is going to trip out.、Mm. Um, we have a lot of background knowledge that way that we bring to make sense of the world around us. Right, and the way we we make sense of the world around us is using reasoning rather than learning.、Wow. Learning gives us the concepts, and you know, in a sense, the reasoning sits on top of learning because we've got to have some mechanism to learn this stuff, and then the reasoning essentially、uh, manipulates those ideas and builds a consistent story. Yes, yeah,、Fascinating. that's the important thing about. Yeah, and and in terms of this kind of reasoning,、um, is this something that you've applied in your kind of、uh, technology leader role?、Uh... Not really.、Um, people have finally started looking at my dissertation, which was、um, looking at what happens if you start adding sensors to a system, because the whole reasoning mechanism changes at that point. You have the capability to observe and shortcut your reasoning process by. Um, determining things that you may have had to prove or or justify in the past, but I can shortcut it by observing whether it's true or not. Right. So sensors enables the system essentially to observe, to see, to detect. Yeah. And that changes how we build internal models.、Um, up until quite recently, that wasn't what people were interested in, and even today, to be honest. Yes. I mean, my thesis was thirty years ago, right? And even today, you can see that a lot of people are still talking about machine learning. You know,、mm. um, a lot of which is really pattern recognition, right? We, well, that, that kind of brings us onto one of the、uh, the, the、uh, questions that I have, which is: so we talk about machine learning and we talk、yep. about artificial intelligence. What's what's the difference between them, or what's the sameness between them? Okay, my. Uh, so I like to go back to original、uh, material, and I'd like to go back to you know who came up with the phrase, who came up with the idea of of learning for machines, or what does AI mean? So from my research, I discovered there's a chap called Arthur Samuel, and he said that machine learning is a field of study that gives. Computers the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed,、right. and so if you think about what happened in AlphaGo or or other chess playing programs, we're not trying to tell the machine exactly what moves to make. We're sort of meta programming the machine in the sense we're telling it the rules, we're telling it how to evaluate. The moves, etc., but we're not telling it exact moves within a game. So that's,、uh, to a certain extent, machine learning. The more modern definition comes,、uh, a good one comes from Professor Zubin Rahmani at、uh, Cambridge, and he says、um, machine learning is an interdisciplinary field that develops both the mathematical foundations and practical applications of systems. 
that learn from data. Right. I think that's the more um, modern definition in the sense that they're moving far more towards data. So a concept that wasn't mentioned by Arthur Samuel. Right. Um, and that's become, you know, obviously very popular in today's deep learning and um, reinforcement learning and so on. And that's quite different to artificial intelligence, which was a phrase coined by John McCarthy. And yep. in 1973, there was the Light Hill debate at the Royal uh, Society of London. And he was asked to define the, the term artificial intelligence. And he said, artificial intelligence is a science. It is the study of goal solving. Sorry, it's the study of problem solving and goal achieving processes in complex situations. Right. And in particular, he emphasized that, you know, AI is a basic science. So we're looking at things like mathematics and physics, and it has problems that are distinct from the study of how human and animal brains work. Right. And I think it's that second piece that a lot of people are missing. We are not trying to uh, effectively replicate a human being. What we're trying to do is to understand some of the features of human thinking and problem solving in novel situations. And how can we capture that and build it into a machine? So we're looking at trying to understand what would thinking mean in the context of a machine. Right. Um, so uh, Eric Horwitz, who is the essentially the chief scientist for Microsoft, says AI is a scientific study of the computational principles behind thought and intelligent behavior. And he, you know, he says there are four pillars, which is perception, learning, reasoning, and communication. Right. So you can see that AI is much broader now because we're having to understand what does it mean for a machine to perceive, to reason, to communicate with us, as well as to learn. Yes, yeah. And so machine learning is, is essentially one of the four legs of the stool. Right. We still have three more to go. Wow, yeah. Um, and, and also, it, nature is layered. Once you get into this sort of cognitive structure, um, you, you know, you, you kind of have to look at um, things like bacteria and how does bacteria then evolve and become much more sophisticated. We're looking at the top of the tree, the most complex system there is on the planet. And surprise, you know, we're not very good at understanding it. Well, we don't understand how bacteria works. What chance do we stand, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're trying to run, maybe maybe fly before we can even crawl, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, so, so in terms of the context of tech leaders out there, because as, as we mentioned, uh, AI machine learning is being banded around. Um, I, my personal opinion, it's being heavily abused. The terms um, it's being used uh, to sell products, um, even to kind of uh, make companies more valuable. Uh, right. just by throwing in the AI. I was talking to a chief technology officer uh, earlier this week around that, um, and he resists kind of doing this stuff because it's he's not willing to get into that game. So in terms of the context of chief technology officers and tech leaders, what does AI and machine learning really mean in, the, in their job right now and maybe kind of the short-term future? I think, I think you're absolutely right. AI has been uh, 
it's been diluted and polluted and, and the media hype is just out of control. And that's really worrying. Um, I've spoken to CIOs recently and they said to me, they laughed. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it, that's a bad sign. CIOs typically don't laugh. <laughs> uh, you know, when you have a CIO that says there is no AI, that's just a marketing term. You know, you have a really hard, uh, an arduous discussion with him because you have to retrieve his belief from that point and, and show him that it's actually of value. What a lot of people do call AI these days is actually machine learning. Mm. And some people, they're not even machine learning is actually data science and data analytics. Yeah. So they're using statistical techniques to make statistical inferences and predictions. Um, and by, by its very nature, you know, we're using data from yesterday to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm. Well, if you talk to anybody who works in trading and automated trading, you'll soon realize that all of the, the ideas and the data that we used to do the trading yesterday doesn't work for where we are today because yeah. the model has been pushed so far out of its domain of applicability. It's not true. Yes. Um, so in terms of AI, there are people doing research in AI and, and, and good examples of the ones I respect are people like Melanie Mitchell, uh, Gary Marcus, Ernst Davis, there's a whole raft of, of people. And, and, you know, if you Google Roger Shank, he, he has some very interesting views. Um, a lot of what is banded about as AI and, and people will argue that the definition has changed. My attitude is the guy who, who coined the phrase is a mathematician. He was asked to define it and he's got a definition live with it. Yeah. If you don't like what he says, go pick a different phrase. No one's yeah. stopping you. Yes. Um, machine learning has a lot of really useful things. And that's where I think today we're, we're is going to be very useful for the chief technology officers because we can do things um, like image recognition. So there are lots of really good systems that can help uh, radiologists with the x-rays identify patterns that they simply cannot see with, the, with, with their own eyes. Right. Nature hasn't provided us to be uh, with the capability to see the, the full spectrum of grayscale. So we can take digital images of thousands of, uh, of bits, yeah. which are thousands of grayscales. We can only see 256. Yeah. So we have the image. We don't have the capability to discern uh, to distinguish these grayscales. A machine does. Wow. So given the image, we can have various kinds of software that runs across that image and says, you know, I've looked at 200,000 images and this seems to be a problem. So right. it highlights it for the radiologist who then has to make a decision. Yes. The idea that you're going to replace the radiologist with a piece of software at this point in time, I believe, is just um, is is really wishful thinking, because the the radiologist is a very complex human system mm. that does a lot more than just says yes you've got cancer no you haven't got cancer or there may be a possibility of a cancer yeah um, depending on how you took the images and there are situations where 
yes, if you go into a very expensive hospital with very expensive equipment, you get very good quality images. You take this thing out into the third world and guess what? Mm. The images are not so great in a field hospital. No. Yes. Um, and also as human beings and I, and you know, I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a human being who probably isn't that accurate, but is working off their intuition and experience and all of the other things that we don't really understand. Yeah. And says it's not looking good, but let's try and find a way around it rather mm. than, well, I'm sorry, Felix, but you've got cancer and you're going to die tomorrow. Yeah, and that's just yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Now there is an argument that there are lots of places in the world where, you know, uh, there's a shortage of radiologists. There may only be you know four for every thousand, ten thousand uh, of the population. So the software is better than nothing at all, and yes. I totally agree with that. So in situations where there are no radiologists, then at least this is something. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of touches on the term that we used um, earlier on, which is, a, in fact, it was your term, augmentation rather than replacing. You know, it's, it's augmenting our ability uh, and lay, uh, creating another layer on top of seeing it differently, I guess, you know, and, and giving you a nudge or a tip, you know. I, I quite like the analogy of the telescopes for the astronomers. I mean, humanity has been looking up at the skies for thousands of years. And um, by, by inventing the telescope, they were able to see much more than they could with just their native eyesight. Yeah. And the more sophisticated technology came along, the better we could see it. And, you know, in the last few years, we've, we've done amazing things. You know, we've detected gravitational waves. We've come up with very clever algorithms that have taken pictures of the event horizon for black holes wow. or what we believe to be event horizon. So um, this is not replacing the astronomer. The astronomer still has to go through a, a, a period of study of understanding how this thing works, all the physics, the maths and what have you to be able to interpret these images. Yeah. Um, but it's giving them tools that they've never had before. Yes. I think at the moment, AI is at that stage, or I should say machine learning is at that stage. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and there's this obsession that we should be able to speak in uh, a natural language with a machine. Well, you know, 300 plus years ago, Leibniz had a different opinion. His idea was, why don't we create a language that we can use to communicate with the machine and the machine can use to do the processing that we want it to do. Wow, okay. If you think about natural language, it's it's just leftover. It, it's, it's not very good, even for human beings. If you get three human beings in a room, they disagree with one another until they, they work around it and realize they're actually talking about the same thing. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Um, a lot of disagreements amongst couples. The cause is the language, not the cause. Yes. You know, they're, they're, they're saying the same thing, but because of the words they're using, they get really angry and, and have fights and arguments. So we know natural language is, is not that great. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Um, and we, we've not really dealt with perception, which is an incredibly interesting uh 
area of research. This is sort of where the neuroscientists can be of, of immense help. And it's not just the neuroscience, it's the cognitive science. It turns out that what we see isn't actually what we detect. Yeah. So your sensors bring in all kinds of information, but the perceptual system builds yes. the image that you see and the stories. So it's about consistent stories. Yes. Human yes. beings are about stories. It's amazing. Yes. You yeah. can tell a consistent story, even if it's wrong, they don't care. And you say, but it's not true. They go, sounds good to me. Let's go with it. <laughs> Let's go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and so in terms of uh, these kind of uh, additional layers, you, you talk yeah. around uh, language, you creating a language around AI rather than trying to kind of fit AI into the way we talk, you know? Yes. Um, um, in, in terms of advancements in the kind of technology space, has there been any kind of movement in, in towards that? Uh, or is that kind of still stuck in trying to solve the... A lot of uh, the research and the focus is on natural language processing. Yes. Um, a lot of the effort is into getting machines to speak either English or some other language. Yeah. Um, and... You know, if you look at uh, speech to text processing, you can just pull up YouTube and have a look at uh, uh, what they come up with. And initially I was rather excited. I used to just select and copy and, and share it and then realized that it made no sense whatsoever. Mm. So now I use it as a starting point. You know, it has some words that are really good. And then I listen to the YouTube and I'm able to then clean it up. Yes. Yes. Um, so with the, you know, and, the, and there are many groups working on natural language processing. My, one of the favorite examples comes from uh, Professor Bengio, who's one of the famous deep learning people who won yeah. a, uh, the Turing Award for deep learning. Um, and he has an example, he's, he's from uh, French Canada. So I think, you know, he, he's bilingual, a genuine bilingual. And he says, you know, here's a phrase in English, Here's the machine translation, and I can tell you that's not what that means. So he takes an English statement, and, and the French equivalent is, is it's translated it, but any human being would go, what? Yes. Yeah. You know, and we're at that stage. I mean, you know, we, we can do some basic things, and Google Translate is good enough for us to look at some text and get it translated, but we're using an incredible amount of human processing to then bring meaning to what we see in the gut. Um, right, yes, yeah, beautiful. So uh, in terms of, you know, bringing it back to kind of uh, the, the industry, uh, the companies out there that want to use AI, uh, machine learning. So what, what good examples, what rock star examples have we got around machine learning? I think you've mentioned the kind of radio, um, radiographers looking at yep. kind of x-rays and stuff. Um, are there any other examples where you've seen this in industry working really well? I do. I, I tend to agree with uh, um, some of the work that's been done, particularly in the in, in the areas of engineering and uh, uh, health, yeah, uh, education. There's a lot of AI work that's been done in education. Um, in terms of engineering, there's something called generative design, okay. which is one of my personal favorites. And there's a, a, a TEDx presentation by Morris Conti. Um, 
and part of that presentation, Morris Conti used to be the CTO for AutoCAD. Right. And part of that presentation, he talks about a project they had at AutoCAD with the Bandido brothers in California, who basically build and race cars. And they took a car and covered it with sensors. They then had one of the race drivers drive this thing around various racetracks, you know, and do the best he could under various circumstances. They collected all that data and they used a generative design software with the data and the car's designers, the person who was designing chassis, um, and enabled him to work with the machine to design sort of the next generation of a chassis. Yeah. And on the, on the video, it, it's fascinating because they show this particular process and they show the chassis that the software designed. And it looks very much like what nature would have evolved. Wow. It's not anything like what we would engineer. The interesting thing there was that they couldn't build it using traditional manufacturing techniques. They had to 3D print that chassis. Cool. And once they did, it performed unbelievably. Wow, that's that's a fascinating story, yeah. So here's a real world example. And it's not just, um, you know, this sounds a little bit uh, specialized, you know, bespoke, you know, maybe that's good for certain companies. Um, another good example is the bird's nest, the Olympic stadium in, in Beijing that yes. was designed using generative design. That's a stunning design. I mean, it's, it is a kind of piece of work that isn't it? It's beautiful in, in, in itself. So construction uses, um, uh, generative design. Brilliant. And so uh, you're probably going to reach out through the uh, conference calling technology here and slap me around the head. Um, uh, so in terms of uh, the technology that's been used, is that machine learning or is that artificial intelligence? Um, I would say it's, it, it's almost something of its own. It's come out of AI research and studies. Right. So the generative design is, is something quite different, but relies on both the learning and AI. Yeah. Um, you could classify it as a sort of subfield of AI. Right. Um, it has beginnings of perception. It has beginnings of reasoning and learning. So I would say it's a subfield of machine uh, of AI as opposed to machine learning. Excellent. Yes. Um, so that is beginning to go down the road that I particularly like, which is uh, building something that is really helpful for human beings. Yeah. By, you know, to be used by human beings as opposed to let's now throw the car designer away and replace it with this software. Yeah, I like that. This is kind of collaboration. It almost feels it is. very, it, I, I, you're probably going to wince at this, but it feels very agile, you know, that kind of collaboration over yes. kind of handing the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, the challenge over to the machine entirely. And um, so it, it sounds like through these very real tangible examples, um, it's starting to create a, a real kind of excitement around what it can actually offer. It's It's kind of, it's becoming real as opposed to something that people oh, talk about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there is, 
you know, apart from the hype, which is the usual drivel that's in the media, <laughs> written by people who have such, you know, biased opinions. Yes. I mean, people talk about bias in data. Wow. You should see the bias in the media regarding AI. Um, and that's a sad point because there are very useful applications of this thing. Yeah. Um, another good example is healthcare. Um, up until now, we've had a situation where if you were in a hospital, the nurse would come along every couple of hours, wake you up, take your temperature, take your pulse, what have you, and tell you to go back to sleep. Well, you know, after three or four of these, it gets monotonous. <laughs> you know, it's like, why are you doing this to me? I'm trying to recover here. <laughs> we don't need to do that anymore because we've now got sort of wearables and we can, um, some of the wonderful examples are uh, the Chinese now have a way of printing um, sensors onto some part of your skin that continually monitors your your temperature. Um, so they don't need to wake them up. Um, there, there are situations where we can weave sensors into the gown that you're wearing. Yeah. And so, you know, if it's not on your hand, we can have heat sensors all over your body and detect hot spots, which may be alerting the medical world to that there's a problem yeah. coming. Um, we, we have pill cams, which is a pill that you can swallow that takes images, you know, 16 frames a second, end yeah. to end. Yeah. Um, we get to see pictures or, you know, the, the medical world gets to see pictures of your entire digestive tract. Yes. Cool. <laughs> you know, and you don't have to go through a general anaesthetic. Yeah. And so, so is it, so, and then the data from this is used by AI or machine learning to see if there's any kind of correlating patterns. Well, I think the pill cam is not, you know, the, the images are actually used by gastroenterologists as opposed to it being fully automated. Yeah. Um, but it's a good start because, you know, a lot of people are, are, they're reluctant to have colonoscopies and things. And we know that colonoscopies help to save lives because they can detect colon cancer a lot earlier. Yeah. So if you can take away the unpleasantness, the, uh, the pain and suffering and so on, plus the fact that it can, you can only do so much. Typically you can't get the end to end, uh, pictures because they're, they're parts of the middle bit. You just cannot reach using yes. these techniques. Yes. Um, yeah. So is it AI, is it machine learning? Um, I like to think of it as emerging technologies. Yeah. And there are a lot of emerging technologies. And, and what the fourth gen industrial revolution is bringing us is actually the fusion of these emerging technologies. So as a CTO, I think it's important to be aware that it's not just a machine learning algorithm or, or some sophisticated chatbot, but there are imaging techniques that are not necessarily machine learning, but much like the X-ray, yeah, that are of immense value. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, it wasn't just deep learning. I mean, um, in the late 1990s, I was building X-ray system for dentists, and there was a neural network-based uh, system back then. You know, 20 odd years ago, built by uh, Lockheed Martin. Yes. Where they could detect caries in your teeth based on the images, which the dentists couldn't see because of the grayscale problem. Wow. Okay. 
And using that, they had built sort of like an intelligent assistant that would look at the images and would tell you probabilities and um, help the dentist mm. decide, should I treat that particular area of this tooth now or should I wait? Yes. Um, so these are technologies that have been around, you know, a couple of decades. They're not. Wow. It's the hype that's blown the deep learning stuff. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned a, an interesting term earlier on, the kind of the AI winter, you know, um, do you think this hype's going to kind of bring about that, that kind of winter again, you know, where people are going to get sick of it and think, do you know what, I've turned off to this now. Um, is that, is that a fair statement to make? Uh, I worry about it. And, and just a few months ago, I, I, started seeing patterns so on twitter i mentioned that we're we're heading into one we have to be very careful if we continue on this path then given the covid and the uh problems financial problems we are facing a lot of companies um are going to start cutting back on ai research why because the people are not there they got rid of the researchers yeah if you're in survival mode you're not going to spend you know, 10% of your, your income on doing research that one day may produce something useful. Yeah. Um, and the hype is, is a real problem because it's not the people who are building these things that are promising certain things. Although in, in startup cases, there's evidence to show that 40% of AI startups don't use AI. <laughs> you know, and the VCs kind of notice that. Yeah. Yes. You know, they ask questions, they ask other people to do due diligence and, and you know, a, a, a really good example is um, somebody last week said to me, what about the A-level grades? You know, look at the mess that AI made of the oh, A-level yes. grades, you know, recently. But that had nothing to do with AI. You know, it was, it was regular uh development and, and decision making by human beings right so that's the other factor is ai has become a really convenient scapegoat yes and people are now associating the word algorithm with ai right algorithms have been around for hundreds of years that, nothing to do with ai yeah well, it's not right. no let me rephrase that it is useful within the context of ai but it also lives in a context that's got nothing to do with ai Right. I can write an if then else statement. It doesn't make it an AI. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's right. And people say, well, it's making a decision. Well, of course it is. It's called a conditional. That's what the conditional does. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can understand how uh, this kind of misinformation is is creating real kind of confusion. And, and it's an it's a it's a conversation that we have within IT labs around this stuff where you know when when people do talk about this, this is one of the reasons why we invited you on. Uh, Felix is because um, there is a lot of confusion and and even when you kind of start to understand it, you hear something else and then it kind of confuses you further you know so so I, I think hopefully for the audience this is kind of giving an idea of questioning what it what it will bring also looking at the kind of possibilities and, and I guess my kind of takeaway on this is that it, 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 the AI and machine learning are great tools they're in the toolbox uh, that that might uh, will, that will give you kind of uh, information that you can then use, uh, but it's not replacing human beings at the moment. Um, and so it's to kind of see it as a tool and see kind of maybe some kind of repetitive tasks, seeing some patterns and being able to indicate stuff. 
Um, so, so as a kind of tech leader, uh, this is a really big question. Okay, I, I understand you might uh, might not want to answer. So, so when do you see AI actually starting to kind of deliver some of the hype that is being thrown thrown out there? How far away do you think we are? I tend to agree with other people who have a background in AI. We're, we're quite far away from AGI. There are a lot of people that believe it, it's, it's imminent, that we're going to have um, superhuman capability AI within the next 20 years. Um, if we achieved it in the next 200 years, I, I, I think we'd be doing really well. We right. have a lot of big obstacles to get over. Um, Common sense is a real issue. Um, and you can see that in machine learning systems. DARPA found that out the hard way. You know, they had two pictures um, of pandas. And they looked exactly the same. But in fact, one of them had been, um, there, there was a some noise that was introduced into the picture. And the machine learning system said, yep, 93% certainty it's a, it, it's a baboon. And to the human sight, you know, there was there was no difference. Right. So these systems are fragile. And, and what DARPA said was um, they're statistically significant, but individually unreliable. Mm. So th this fragile nature we have to overcome. Yeah. And I think part of it is because we have this sort of hierarchy uh, within our intelligence where some of the um, higher levels control what happens at the lower levels. Um, and we, we just don't have that at the moment. Yeah. Um, and in fact, DARPA launched a $2 billion research where it was specifically to look at common sense reasoning and communications. Um, I guess that's why the uh, common sense reasoning is crept into the, uh, the language of the deep learning people because they saw some of their resource funding go somewhere else. Right. Yes. Um, I don't think it's imminent. I think we have lots of things that look like human beings. You know, the Terminator is coming. We worry about things that I think right now we need to worry about other things like running out of clean water. Yes. You know, um, and so I agree. And, and I'm happy that people are doing um, AI ethics. Because I think these are discussions we need to have. Yeah. But I don't think it's at the right time to, you know, to get people worried about the Terminator coming, I think it's just fear-mongering. Yeah. yeah. You know, it takes a data center to play chess or Go that beats a human being. <laughs> you know, yeah. a human being is happy. You give it a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea, it'll play chess, you know. 400 megawatts to play to beat you it's kind of like we're, you yeah. know we have a way to go guys <laughs> yeah love it that's great so um so in terms of uh that i mean this this, this great subjects here and i'd love to kind of speak to you more about this um so in terms of uh, our tech leaders men and women out there and aspiring tech leaders I and mean, what would be your kind of key takeaway to the audience what would you like to kind of leave them with well, a couple of things, one of which, um, when I talk to people within the C-suite and, and help them to navigate these waters, it's really helped them to ask questions from the people who are trying to be a service provider. 
And the kind of questions is, okay, so you're, you're going through a digital transformation. You're putting all your assets into the cloud. What happens if I cut the cord and you don't have access to the internet? Now what? Mm. You know, and it's that kind of counterfactual questions that are so important. Um, let's suppose that uh, your system is uh, compromised when it's in the cloud. Yeah. And I come along and I change, I rat, you know, this isn't sort of a blatant, you know, I'm going to uh, do damage to this kind of thing, but I randomly, I, I turn up, I break into your database and I just randomly change some bytes without caring what it belongs to or who it belongs to, what have you. So imagine that um, in, 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 a, in a database, I changed your date of birth by a month. Yeah. You know, just a few bytes. Um, and it happened to be the database that's used to authenticate you. Yeah. Now you have a problem. Um, imagine that happened to all databases that have information stored about you. All of a sudden, TC doesn't exist. Mm. How do you prove that you exist? Well, you don't have the paper documents. You don't have the passports anymore in the future. And then I mean, in the near future, everything is becoming, uh, you know, uh, electronic yeah so while it's a wonderful idea you know let's put everything electronic we don't have to have paper we don't have to have this that and the other if something goes wrong we have a problem yeah and in fact i was trying to find the link to connect with you and it was on my email and the email kept on saying the service is currently not available and i thought wow wow yeah i get this link yes yeah so an ai just amplifies that um and I'll give you an example that I've given talks on, which is um, the digital equivalent to swarms. I mean, right now, there's a, there's a, there's a huge problem in Africa, which is, uh, you know, biblical proportion of, of locusts that are stripping the land of food. So these yeah. people are most likely going to starve to death. And this isn't, you know, we've had 2000 years to deal with this problem. And we yeah. still have the same techniques, a bit like the COVID, you know, it's the same as the black black death you know go home don't talk to anyone and so on mm. um now imagine that you had tiny little creatures like termites but digital ones mm. and a system was attacked by a whole sleuth of these tiny little things which you which may not even be noticed by your antivirus or or, or your you know your, your protection mm. once inside your system they self-organize um, there are a couple of companies that are trying to sort of figure out what, how, how do you defend the system right. against something like this? And you can see where I'm coming from. I mean, this is a bit more like bacteria, you know, what, what happens if instead of you and me catching, you know, flu, that it's a server catching some kind of malware. Yes. The analogy is, is quite a good one. Yeah. And so there are companies like dark trace that have modeled their um, defenses on a natural immune system. Right. So by studying the immune system and how does the immune system work, they are now producing um, defenses for a digital system like a server. Right. And it doesn't, I mean, you know, if you think about the cloud, I used to, we used to joke about it when it first came out. A cloud is basically um your stuff on somebody else's server yeah 
you know, it's still technology. It's still, yes, it's different technology. It's not a server. It's a blade in a rack. Um, but it's still, you, you still need to protect it in a similar sort of way. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's great. We do all this encryption and what have you. But if I come along and change bytes, I don't care if it's encrypted. Yeah. If I change the bytes, it's going to be really hard for you to decrypt it. Yeah. Because the algorithm's going to break. That's so right. So there are things that we need to, to to still learn from nature. I mean, this parallel of uh, cybersecurity, and these are you can see that this attack is now beginning to look like an intelligent attack. Mm. And the intelligence isn't single like the Terminator. I honestly don't think the problem of AI is that kind of Hollywood superhuman turning up killing people mm. that's just that's just great for for going to the movies with <laughs> the real problem we have is collective intelligence right you know if you take an individual b uh it's a very intelligent little creature but you put a hundred thousand of them together yeah a million of them together, they do amazing things that the individual couldn't. That's right. And that's what we've got to start thinking about. Okay, how these different systems start to kind of collaborate and maybe interact and, and respond. Yeah, excellent. Um, I've just kind of realized that we kind of missed out Sorry. a big a big part. No, it's cool. A, a big part of who you are, which is, a, you know, your, part of your uh, career, which is being a CTO. Um, I was particularly interested in how, um, as a you know, chief technology officer, you kind of uh, got your teams. Um, so obviously you have teams underneath you. How do you get the best out of them? What's your kind of tips for the, for the audience out there? Well, I guess I've been fortunate in many respects that I tend to choose the kinds of projects that I like to work on, which are the ones that don't have an immediate answer. Right. Um, there are lots of people that are so much better than me for the more generic type problems that yeah. um, you know the business sector faces every day. And so that's not where my skill is. But there are situations where they have a problem that no one knows how to even tackle. How do you start to find what a solution would look like? Yeah, a real And problem. managing those types of uh, particular projects is quite a different set of skills. Right. Because you can't, if you don't know a solution exists, you can't do milestones. What would the what would the milestone be? Well, you know, mm. um, and also the timelines are very different. So you know, time boxing it is incredibly difficult, but it's still a good good idea. The thing is, the two weeks is not long enough to do research to try and see what is the nature of this problem. Yes. And, and at what point do you pull the plug? Mm. So those once you start looking at those types of, uh, of projects, then the teams tend to be small. So my specialty is looking after teams that are typically between five to seven people. Yes. Uh, three to seven people, actually. You know, five plus or minus two. Yes. Um, and within a team like that, it really does take on some of the spirit of agility because... There are no seniors and, and managers. Everybody is in it at the same time. It's a self-organizing team. Um, 
you need to have people who think differently. And I think that is the real key. And I think that's the real key for technology as well as education. It's the key for the 21st century is we've start, we need to start literally thinking about thinking. Yes. And so you're looking for people who think differently because you want people within the team that can bring a different perspective. Yeah. And looking after a team like that, you really do need to um, look at the human aspects. Yeah. And one of the things I, I, I try and negotiate is the fact that I will build this team, but it's my team. And you have to let me, you know, kind of build it and work with it the way I see fit. And in particular, in some circumstances, um, I've had them given them the freedom to work from home in the past. And um, there's something called ROW, Results-Oriented Work Environment. Right. Um, and I started doing something like that before that became uh, formalized. So what we would do is uh, each Monday, and a week, I think, is a, is a nice... Um, so instead of having a sprint every day, in these types of projects, a week works really well. So this, yeah. You know, the kind of stand-ups, if you like, are, are a week apart. They're not every day. Okay. Um, the team works in one area. So this, the stand-up idea for me is no longer a discrete thing once a day. It's continuous. So people right. are interacting with one another all the time. I don't want to wait 24 hours before we realize there's a problem. Yes. Um, but the other thing is that it's really... At the the sort of the weekly stand-ups it's looking at what we need to do what what we've tackled what didn't work what worked um and each person takes responsibility for looking at a particular thing and they have a you know whether it's and at that point you decide is this going to be something you're going to spend two days four days a week two weeks whatever yeah um and and you know if you feel if the individual who's doing this thing feels that they're barking up the wrong tree or if it's a dead end, let's deal with that as it arises. Let's yes. not wait for the next milestone. Yeah, and 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 so to give the audience a kind of uh, context around what kind of projects they are, I mean, this, these sound like there's a, a general outcome that you want, but you just don't know what that looks like and how that's gonna come Correct. about. So yeah. uh, an example of that would be? Well, one of the examples was uh, building um, a new kind of software and hardware for dentists. Right. You know, what would actually help the doctor and the nurses and the administration in the dental office? Right. So now, you know, it's not saying, can you write software to do um, patient management or patient yeah. scheduling, or can you build a better digital x-ray system? Because yeah. at the time, you know, um, we were fighting against the film. So when we had digital x-ray systems, everyone was using films. And it was, uh, as a CTO, learning that it's not just technology, but it's about people. Yeah. You have to kind of explain what this thing does, why is it useful, how could you use it to uh, improve what you do? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's really working with 
not just the organization that you're, you're attached to, but also their customers understanding the needs of the customers. One yeah. of the things that I learned very early on in my career was we built a fingerprint recognition system in 92. Wow. And by building it, I mean, we had a working prototype. We couldn't sell it because society wasn't ready and therefore they could not see the value of having a digital uh, fingerprint for security and for other authentication and other reasons. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, this, this whole idea of build it, they will come. My reaction is good luck. <laughs> You know, the number of times we've done this in my, my experience and, and we've, you know, solved difficult problems, but not really understood this, this critical factor of, you know, is, is society ready to accept this kind of technology, this kind of solution? Right. Because if they don't see the problem, they're not going to accept your solution. Right. Yes. And so as a CTO, the really tricky things is not necessarily, are we going to use Java or are we going to use C-sharp or, or some of this stuff? Um, you're, you're having to leverage a lot more uh, tools like design thinking. Yes, right. So people sort of talk about Scrum. Scrum is great for doing product development. Yes. What product? Mm. We don't even know if a product can be built, never mind how to go about building it. Right. So the, the design thinking and, and what have you brings in not just people uh, within the organization, but people from outside the organization. You're trying to understand, is there a problem here? What is it? Mm. And how do we go about solving it? Right. Yes. Yeah. The beauty of that is you're, you're, you're going about solving a problem that society already understands. Yeah. So when you come up with a problem, they go, oh, we have that problem. Give me the solution. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. It's kind of but getting the stuff ready on shelf uh, for the, the right time, you know, when things kind of converge. And uh, yeah, that's the real tricky bit is because you're not the only one doing this. Yeah. There are lots of other CTOs who are also doing this. Yeah. So there comes a time. The hardest thing for me as a CTO was trying to decide when do I pull the plug on a project? Yeah. Because the, the, you know, you've got a small team, they self-organize, they're, they're almost like a family at that point. And to kill the project is like killing one of their children. Oh dear. Yeah. You know, and the, so you have to allow for the fact that once you say the project is gone, we've got a new project, you, that there, there's a period where you almost have of grief. Yeah, I mean, this morning. is something that the, the business world finds difficult to understand is that programmers and, and technology people feel grief when things go wrong in, in, in what they're doing. Mm. You know, it, it's different to building something and it doesn't, you know, if I'm building a garden shed and it doesn't work, I don't feel grief. I get annoyed. <laughs> you know, there's a difference. Yes. Yeah. Um, when the program doesn't work and it harms a human being, the programmers actually go through a grieving process because they right. feel responsible that this thing did bad things. Yes. And by bad, I don't mean, you know, it killed people, but it, 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 it harmed them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so as a, as a CTO, and I, and I mentor CTOs, and I, and I tell them, you know, it's, it's more about going to the board, getting money out of the board for funding projects, explaining to them what you're trying to do, um, looking after and building a team, which is yeah. all kind of human skills. Um, because a lot of programmers sort of say, I want to be a CTO so I can decide not to use this tool set or I, this language, or I want to make these technical decisions. Like, don't become a CTO. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting perspective on a CTO kind of role. It's uh, it's the bridge between the business and the technology, but not necessarily in the technology. Um, um, I, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, 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 quite a strange position to be in and a very tough one as well because you've got to have that human element as well as a, a broad enough understanding of what technology out there to, to kind of guide, you know, the teams that you have. As well as legal aspects, you know, you have to understand, uh, you know, patents and patent filing and copyright. Um, right. And do you, if somebody has a solution is it worth just giving them the royalty and getting on with it? Or, um, you know, is there a solution out there that you could use to build your solution? Yes. Yes. And interesting, we've uh, interviewed uh, an interesting gentleman that actually uh, was a big, is a big advocate of um, partnerships instead of building stuff yourself you look to see what's already out there somebody's already reinvented it you know yeah. uh, and it's and the uh, the the goal of a chief technology officer sometimes is more about integration how can we take this and bring this and create synergy between uh, these two off-the-shelf solutions you know to, to solve the outcome that we want yeah and a good example is we were uh, building conventional uh, intraoral video cameras so these are cameras that your dentist uses to see your teeth, but there were analog cameras, you know, right. basically miniaturized camera and uh, you could look at a TV. Um, so then um, it be, the, the digital video systems, interfaces, protocols came in mm. and Sony had a system and um it was called the 1394 the firewire so the question was how do we build a firewire camera um that will outperform the 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 analog ones as well as the ones that were in the beginning to appear in the marketplace which were the first generation of usb cameras that could only handle vga right so that was one of the kind of, you asked for an example, mm. is how can we do essentially full color, 60 frames a second video when everybody else is doing, you know, 640 by 480, um, much lower resolution, much lower color. And obviously it didn't have the frames per second. So as you move the camera, there was this sort of jagged. Oh dear, yeah. And is it worth doing? Yeah. Who can we reach out to that understands about firewire yes and so you're, you're having to solve those kinds of problems as opposed to let's just get the protocol for firewire and get to it yeah yeah that may not be that may be a rational path for a technologist but it's an irrational path for a business person so a cto you're straddling both of those yeah, it's quite, quite a tough world to kind of live in. It's almost like a, a no man's or no woman's land, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it can be quite... I, one of the things that was really helpful for me in my career, which I forgot to mention, was that 
after getting my bachelor's degree, I went off to Deloitte to become a management consultant. Wow. So for a couple of years of working with Deloitte, and I really enjoyed doing the business analysis and the systems analysis, which gave me the tools that I needed from a business perspective um, that has really, I am so grateful for what process I went through. Yeah. Because they really give me the edge uh, over and above a technical person. Because when I go in, one of the things that, you know, if it's a, a standard business situation, they've got a problem, mm. uh, I look at their business processes. Tell me what the problem is, tell me your processes, and let me see, you know, what we can do. And, and, and there have been situations where I fixed their business process and not written a single line of code. All right. So it's just a pre another layer on top of all that, which was the actual kind of problem. Fix the problem, the actual problem. Well, that's than... what the businesses want. They want yeah. the problem fixed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and often, I don't know what it is. For some reason, people think, write some software. I need some software to fix this problem. It's like, no software will fix that problem because it's a broken business process. Right. This is what you need to do. And once they do it, they go, oh. <laughs> well, that didn't cost as much, did it? Yes, yeah. So they invite me in and, and you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm involved in projects. I've got nothing to do with software. Mm. That's an interesting one. I, um, and having that experience as well, um, again, straddling that divide between business and technology, you know, you're able to appreciate the fact that it's not always a technological solution. Sometimes maybe the technology is the problem, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know. Uh, the, I've got examples of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can do another podcast completely yeah. dedicated to that one. Um, but I so, think that's where CTOs should be, in yeah. my opinion. That, um, and I like Alan Kay's uh, example where he distinguishes invention from innovation. Right. So he says, uh, invention is what Xerox Park did. They invented the local... Uh, area network, the laser printer, the GUI, the mouse, the and so on. Um, innovation is what Steve Jobs did. Right. If you look at Steve Jobs, he didn't really invent anything. No. You know, the MP3 player existed before he had the iPod. Yeah. You know, and if you look at the iPhone, um, some of that technology existed. It what did. he's genius and i think it is a genius was he understood how do i go about using this invention so that the masses understand how can i convey it i have to build something that has a story i can tell the story to the people and they will buy it mm. yes. and that's what apple does brilliantly yeah yeah who else sells phones at 1200 pounds a time and people queue up yeah middle of the night to buy it it's not the technology trust me yeah that's right yeah and that's very true as mentioned earlier on human beings a story a storyteller story hearers you know we love hearing stories and and that's what kind of uh, that's where uh, uh, the innovation um story um the the innovation kind of captured people uh, that's quite interesting. I love that, that this comparison between the two. So to mindful of time, um, yep. uh, I, I just want to kind of cover one more area, actually, in terms okay. of AI, um, which is around uh, AI at the edge. Because yes. being an, an embedded software engineer myself, I don't know if any, the audience understand what that is. Basically, you work very closely with the electronics. 
uh, and we uh, embedded engineers work in real time. It's kind of as things happen, we have to respond to them straight away. So AI at the edge, what's that, Felix? Well, right now, I, I, I was going to mention it to you that it's, it's more machine learning at the edge. Okay. Um, AI at the edge is really the sort of the promised land, if you like. Um, the machine learning at the edge is we've had tremendous advancements in hardware. So people see the hardware uh, advancements at the machine, uh, at the data center level. Um, there's been a lot of advancement at the embedded level. And these are sort of microcontrollers or what used to be called microcontrollers in, in, in our day. Yeah. Um, and the, the company that's been doing uh, the most in promoting these ideas is ARM. Yeah. So ARM has produced all kinds of wonderful, they're not the only company. I think they're the ones that are um, most in, in the media and in people's minds and so on. Yeah. And they do help developers tremendously. Yeah. And ARM has produced all kinds of things um, that are capable of running little machine learning programs. So one of the things you can do is uh, have a network and the edge is really the last piece of that network. So typically would be a router or a switch of some kind. Right. And as you plug in devices to that router, you can now have AI, oh, sorry, machine learning uh, software running in the router. So that's where the edge is. Yeah. Um, there is some, there are some examples of it being embedded into the devices themselves. So if you have a hairdryer, you can now put a little machine learning chip in the hairdryer to make sure that, you know, it behaves the way it needs to and gives you warnings. There are examples of toothbrushes, you know, that tell you you're brushing too hard or give you a pattern of how you've been doing it and so on. So mm. there are examples of these chips being put into the devices, but typically it's at the router. Right. Um, and what this enables us to do, again, it goes back to things like health, uh, another good example is a building. If you look at uh, how buildings kind of function, it would be really nice to cover them with sensors and then have some kind of device that they plug into that uses machine learning to figure out that if you're in this room, 90% of the time, you walk down a corridor and go into this other room. So, you know, it, it, it makes it very efficient in terms of lighting and energy consumptions you can have them in various components like washing machines. Um, yeah. I mean, it does get, you know, you can have your imagination running wild at this point because yes. these are tiny little devices, you know. Yes. Um, and inexpensive. So they don't consume very much energy. They're very inexpensive and they are small. Yeah. So, you know, you can cover the, your, your, your home and let your imagination go wild of what, can happen and you can have your refrigerator talking to your cooker and so on yes um that's good so it's kind of like a, a, another progression of the internet of things it's another layer absolutely on top of that. yeah and um i i think one of the examples that you've preventative shared preventative maintenance preventative is maintenance. where it's huge yeah yeah starting to notice th as things are happening before they actually happen um well, one of the examples that yeah you've shared previous to the podcast was uh, around uh, the camera with a small uh, bit of machine learning um uh, kind of um 
Uh, well, I think that that's a, an emerging technology where instead of having people go through the agonizing experience of a colonoscopy, um, there, there are cameras now that you can swallow and it takes pictures roughly 16 frames a second or something like this. Yeah. Um, and so the gastroenterologist gets a amazing picture of your digestive tract end to end, something <laughs> we've not had before. Yes. Um, the real thing is that right now we don't have much control over it because it's, it's basically you, you've swallowed it and you're now processing this thing. Um, so how, how does the gastroenterologist kind of slow it down or stop it or turn it round or do other things? Mm. Um, the, the, the images, it's difficult to process in, in, in a pill size. Uh, right. system but i think it's coming i think that's a completely doable thing within the next 10 years right yes um monitoring people you know we now have fitbit and things like this um we can have embeddable sensors um and in in some cases we already have that you know for people who have diabetes type 1 diabetes and so on um so in terms of health um we can we can have the ai at uh, sorry, machine learning at the edge would be really helpful in those types of, because if you think about it, a lot of people carry phones. Yes. An amazing thing is they carry phones in the third world. Yeah. You know, so we have the communication device. We have something that can talk to the phone through various technologies. Yes. Um, and so I think the limiting factor here really is our own imagination. Mm, I love that. Yes. We, if, if we, look at this stuff from a from an engineering perspective rather than a hollywood perspective then we can really start to build things that are because the sensors are becoming wearables yeah things that we can print you know almost like a uh, makeup mm. um and by doing processing the whole idea of doing processing at the edge and hopefully into the device itself is that we don't need to send as much information. That's right. As much data. Um, and I think that's one of the things that AI people really need to start thinking about is that uh, your eye and the retina and all of the pieces leading to your brain process information. So by the time the information arrives at your brain, it's not overwhelmed with it. Mm. That's the that's a really interesting point because I imagine with all this data that we're collecting out there, it, there, there is an overwhelm going on. Um, I, I know I've worked for organizations where they've got vast amounts of data, but it's kind of at the end of the process and they just don't know where to start. It's just a lot of data, you know, big data projects. Um, and, and maybe this is the answer. But randomly correct, collecting data is not helpful. That's the, yeah, this is it. You just create, I think you just create one, a, a kind of storage problem, <laughs> um, vast amounts of it being kept and then knowing what the hell you do with it, you know? Whereas what I love about this is that, again, as you, the example you give around nature is, is having layers of, layers of um, kind of processing it before right. it, you know, and, and the information that arrives at the kind of central core decision-making thing is uh, in a, it's another layer of then decision-making there. It's not around processing the data. It's about, so we've got this indication, this right. indication. Yeah. yeah. And Love in that. fact, the, the interesting thing is in 93, 
I was invited out to Xerox Park and um, to give a presentation. And, and so, you know, I, I was so excited. And then I suddenly asked one of the people, why am I here? <laughs> and they said, well, we've implemented um, AI in photocopiers. So I said, that's interesting. And they said, yeah, we, we have this sort of, uh, so the copier has almost like self-awareness. It has its own model and therefore makes predictions of how much is being used, what kind of components, what are the lifetimes of components, and therefore it can estimate when a component will fail. It dials the support center and it tells them, uh, you know, this is machine A37B, my roller is wearing out at a, at a faster rate than I, and we predicted. Could you send a field engineer out? Here's my serial number. Here's the serial number for the part. And yeah. the engineer would turn up. Wow. And it just freaked the people out. Yes. Yeah. You know, my photocopier called you. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, no engineers went out yeah. without parts. There was no sort of engineer going out to figure out what's wrong with it and then having to reschedule to come in with the appropriate part. Yeah. You know, so from, uh, from a, a, an organizational saving, it was tremendous. Yeah, that's great. I'll just, um, just on a kind of funny comical note, I can imagine photocopier phoning back to the office saying, I'm feeling a bit lonely. Can, <laughs> can you talk? <laughs> can I talk to another photocopier? <laughs> What's your day been like? <laughs> That's right. Well, Love BMW <laughs> implemented something like this in their cars. You know, that it would contact your uh, garage and book itself in for a service. Cool. At a yeah. convenient, you know, at a time that, that was convenient for the machine and the garage is like, oh, well, hang on, what about me? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Check my calendar first, you know. <laughs> right. uh, I'm, I'm on the golf course that time. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we're kind of running out of time so bring it kind of kind of a close yeah um so looking at the kind of bigger picture of you felix the the kind of ai thought leader i like to think of you as a as a thought leader in this space uh, mm -hmm. your ex your experience as a, a chief technology officer a tech leader um also um i, I didn't mention this earlier on the kind of you know, i love your outspokenness with a smile you know you you like to kind of <laughs> you like to bring a, a good conversation to the space um, what would you like to leave our tech leader, men and women out there with as a kind of final takeaway? For me, it's about imagination. It's about creativity. And I co-authored a book on the fourth industrial revolution uh, with my late uh, co-author, Mark Skilton. And the closing thought there, I think, is still valid today. Think about AI as doing something you couldn't do today, rather than something that will make it cheaper, faster. Beautiful, yeah. So think of a problem you have or a problem that if you solved would give you a real competitive edge and go for it. Rather than thinking if I laid off five people and used machine uh, learning, I could then you know save 10%. And I think that's the philosophy that existed at Xerox Park in, in, in the sort of the 70s and the 80s, is, is really go for uh, the imaginative stuff. Excellent. And I think we have the technology to do that today. Yeah, inspiring. That's a really inspiring close to our conversation. So, 
Thank you very much, Felix. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And um, there's lots of really juicy topics and uh, discussion points here. And I hope to continue the conversations with you in the coming future. Thank you, sir. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, TC. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Now that was a fun conversation. Man, we had a good long talk. Due to the conversation's length and meanderings into other areas, we had to take out large parts of that recording. Well, Felix is a colourful character. I like to think of him as an outspoken person with a smile. And what he says has firm foundations. He really has some interesting perspectives. And it's also great to speak to a fellow University of Warwick alumni. So the key takeaways from the podcast for me were understanding where we really are with AI and ML and how far we are away from delivering on the hype and the use cases that have already proved to be useful and impactful. And from a tech leader's perspective, his advice on not to become a tech leader just to focus on tech. It's a bigger picture than that, one that requires a business lens as well. So Felix, much appreciated. I look forward to speaking again. And remember to subscribe to our CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to our IT Labs webinar series. URLs to do that can be found on this page. We are consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about the services that IT Labs provides, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, folks, that's all. Look after each other and keep safe. From everyone here at IT Labs, live well and prosper until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.